So there are times that, I know I've used this as my introduction way too many times, but I don't have an introduction. <laughs> and so there's sometimes when I'm like reading through the text and being like, I, I, there's just so much going on. There's so much that I feel like is in this text that I, I, I could never, ever begin to, to do the text justice standing up here because the word is powerful. It's full. There's, there's so much. We're going we're to talk about three verses this morning, three verses in the book of James. And yet, there's just not enough time to fully dig out just the riches of God's word. And I hope you feel that too. I mean, I, as, as I prepare, as I, as I read and I study through the week, there's just continually this, this weight of this is the word of God that, that we get to open up, that we get to read, that we get to, to hear read, that we get to experience and be changed by. And I hope that we feel this together as a church because we've talked about in preparing for this study through James that, that there's some weighty stuff, there's some hard stuff that, that James gets into. And, and, and there's some more this morning, that some, more, some more challenge, some more of James pointing out our, our priorities to where we're, where we're tempted to prioritize maybe the wrong things and then kind of orient us back to what really matters. And as we are getting into the book of James, um, we, I, I said this um, both weeks so far, I'm going to say it again this morning, just to remind us who James is writing to here because the focus on people walking through trials has been really a focus the first two weeks, and it's going to remain that way, um, especially through this first chapter. That's really kind of the focus, because James is writing to people who are walking through some really difficult times. They're, what did it say? So they're facing various trials. These are people who've been scattered throughout the, the region, out throughout the Mediterranean area, because, mainly because of persecution, mainly because of their faith. And he's continually to call them to, to certain, to, to kind of reset what the world might be telling them. Right? It's a kind of all joy when you face trials of various kinds. He says that, that through those trials, God is actually making us more like Jesus. He says to ask for wisdom, and God will provide wisdom. But not wisdom that tries to just escape the trials, but to walk through them. And again, we're, we're still in that same mindset, that same thought, that same kind of lens of the audience being people who are walking through trials. And in, and in various ways, various trials, like we can all probably relate to this. But this morning, James is specifically going to like talk about in three verses. But what we see is that what really matters in the midst of a trial? Like what is it that really matters. Because I think that trials, as we walk through challenging times, as we walk and, and face various things, it's really quick that our priorities can get out of whack. I mean, I've seen this all the time in my own life, over and over. That we're easy, it's easy to forget what is most important when times are really hard, when times are challenging. But what happens when trials come? 
Maybe it's that we let certain relationships kind of slide by the wayside because we don't value them. Maybe we're tempted to pull away from the community that God has given us, specifically the church. Maybe we run back to old habits or old coping skills, even though we know they don't ultimately fulfill. I mentioned this last week, but we can latch on to anything that gives us a sense of control, whether that's a different job or a change of hairstyle or a life change. Like We talked about that it gives us control, even for just a moment, and we run to those things. We can start valuing different things. We start placing a high value on, on money or on wealth, thinking that maybe this will help solve this trial. And as our priorities get out of, get out of whack, get out of line, we, last week we talked about that double, being double-minded. We start being more concerned and we, with the things of the world. We start valuing the things of the world more. And that's just, we're just like a wave that says there's tossed and, and here and there by the wind because we're latching on to temporary things. And I think that if we're going to learn to persevere through trial, it's going to come through the right priorities in those trials, knowing what is important, knowing what matters and what doesn't. And it's going to come through understanding, an understanding of what it is that matters. Let's, let's, let's read James 1, 9 through 11. It'll be on the screen. James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the, man, the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. <laughs> two, two weeks ago we talked about some, some things being disorienting, right? Like the count it all joy when you face trials. Like that's a disorienting concept. Without, without the right lens on, that, that's hard to understand. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to count it joy when things are Difficult, when things are challenging. Like, how do we count that as joy? But this statement right here is kind of the same thing. It's disorienting. Like, what? Let the lowly brother boast and the rich boast in humiliation. Like, it just, it's kind of disorienting. It was to me. With Depends on what lens we're reading this through. But how does this make any sense? It, it because this goes against any, everything, really, that the world teaches. The, the way the world works, this makes no sense. Because the, what does the world say? It says you should boast in what you have. Because and the rich, the ones that have, like, they're the ones that have it. The ones who are successful, the ones that we should strive to be like. Just think about how our culture, specifically in the U.S., how it works. Who, who are the ones that have the power? Who are the ones that have the authority? Generally speaking, it are the ones with money, with power, 
with wealth of some kind. There, there, we could dig deeper and find some, there's some, some more that comes into play with that. But generally speaking, that's how the world works. It's just like the way things work. That those with, that ultimately end up with power, with authority, are those that have. They have money. They have stuff. They have wealth, the possessions. And I was thinking, I, I don't touch on anything political ever, hardly at all. <laughs> ever, hardly at all. That didn't make sense. But, like, have you ever seen someone who is poor, in poverty, running for any kind of office? Mayor, governor, senator, president. Like, I don't know, like, maybe this has happened, but I cannot think of anyone I've ever heard of who is living in poverty, who is, who is poor with very little in this world to run for any kind of office. To run for office, what do you have? It's power, authority. You have to have money to do so. I, I did some research. Really, I just did a Google search. But the combined 1992 presidential campaign of George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot cost a total of $192 million, that campaign. The Bush-Gore campaign in 2000 was over $2 million. The 2004 campaign, $345 million. The 2008 campaign, $730 million. The 2016 combined campaigns, over $2 billion. It's insane how much this cost. Like, I, I know that all of that is not paid for by the individuals themselves. I, I get that. But to become the most politically powerful person in this country, there's wealth involved. There, you, have to, you have to have money. You have to have power. You have to have that kind of command. And this is just the way most of our world is structured. It's, most, it's the way that our culture is structured. Is this power with power, money, wealth? Usually those things are all kind of wrapped up together. But we've continually seen, we saw this all through Genesis, that the way God works, the way He is set up, the, just the way that He works is so much different than this. It's so different than this. It's, it's backwards compared to the world. Or I guess the world is backwards compared to God. Like, we work in a backwards way because that's not how God works. Think, think of a couple examples. So Genesis. We said this over and over as we walked through Genesis. There's a messed up family that God was choosing to work through. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, Ishmael. Like, all these individuals that we talked about, yet they were the people that God was choosing. God wasn't giving them value based on what they had or what they didn't have, based on how much uh, power they had, based on them making the right decisions. But he was choosing to work through this family that most of the world would have said, wow, they're messed up. I want nothing to do with them. Think the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's not exactly what the world would say. Oh, they're blessed. And maybe one of the most clear examples is as Jesus, the Son of God, King Jesus, in the way of the world, should have come in, in royalty and power. 
but he came in a manger, opposite of what the world would have expected, what they were looking for. Because the way God works is, is nearly always completely opposite of what we come to expect, because we've got our worldly lens on. And I think that, I know this is true of me, but I think that so many times we can look at the way things are structured here. We can look at the world through, not the way that God works, but through the way the world works. What is most important? We, we look at that through a worldly lens. And we forget that it's not just power, not just money, not just looking pretty on Facebook, not just having power in this world. Like That is not what matters in the kingdom of God. It's not those things. And I think the church, just historically, has gotten pulled into this worldly view over and over again. I mean, so often you see that some churches are run by successful businessmen. Like, they treat it like a business because that's what worked in the world. When you treat people a certain way, when you, when you uh, respond to people a certain way, when you run a business a certain way, this is what works. And these, these methods have kind of crept into the church as well but we're holding on to standards that may work in the world, but that's not how God has designed the church. It's not how God has designed his people to function. It's not what God has taught his people to value. Look at James 1 verse 9 again. Once again, just remember who James is writing to. These Christians who've been scattered, who are being persecuted, But he's writing to believers in Jesus. He's writing to Christians. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. But two types of people. Two types of people. The lowly brother, the the one who doesn't have much in terms of worldly things. Maybe not much money, authority, reputation, power wealth. This isn't just talking about money, but I think that is, that is a main part of this. But most of these people he, would, he, were, he was writing to would have very likely been better off at some point earlier in their life before they were scattered. They, they likely would have had more, had more money, had more possessions, had more maybe reputation. But these people would have lost a lot because of following Jesus. They would have lost a lot through this process. But then the rich, it's, it's debated whether or not he's, he's talking about Christians. About, when he refers to the rich, is he, t- is he talking about Christians? Are you talking about people of the world? And I'm pretty confident he's still talking about believers here. People who do have stuff, whether it's money or or wealth. But I I do want to clarify, because some some people do teach that to to follow Jesus, to to be a Christian, that you can't can't have much money, that you can't be be well off, that that you can't have monetary stuff. But the Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't say that you can't be materially wealthy and still be a Christian. It does say that it's hard. 
It does say that it's very difficult. Uh, I just want to read a couple verses just so we keep this in mind. Matthew 6, 24. It says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Timothy 6.10. I'm just going to read that, that first little bit. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money. Like there's some pretty strong, strong words. Some pretty strong words to, to those that might put too high of a value on money in this world. But what? So why do you think James is making the distinction between these two groups of people? Well, wh why do this? I, I think that we're it's, we're really quick to try to see we, we're really quick to see people d that are different than we are. When we see those the, the, the two groups, like I think that we can maybe maybe re relate to one more than the other. But we automatically start thinking more of that other group that, might, that looks different than us. Like, maybe you're here and you're identifying, you, you feel like you identify more with that lowly brother. Maybe you feel like you don't have much in this world, but it's really easy to compare yourself to those that do. Maybe you don't have a nice, as nice of a, of a house as others. Maybe you don't have a house at all. Maybe, you're, maybe your clothes don't match up with others. Maybe your job doesn't match up with others. Or maybe you don't have a job at all. Maybe it's status, title, whatever it is. But it's so easy to look at others and see what they have. And just think, man, I don't have that. But I think the opposite is true as well. Um... Maybe, maybe you feel like, well, I, I wouldn't consider myself rich, but I, I have plenty. I have quite a bit of stuff. And I think it's easy to think, wow, the stuff that I have, I'm different than those people. It's easy to start getting a little bit of pride built up when we think of what we have versus what other people maybe don't have and think that, hey, I worked hard. I, I, I earned it. I achieved more because I did that. And if I'm honest, I feel like at various times in my life, I've kind of felt like I was in both of these places. Um, but listen, like the goal is not, the goal of this is not to try to identify with one of these groups. Like that is, that is ultimately not the goal. That's not what James is talking about here. Because as we try to say, oh, this is who I am. I identify with one of these groups, whether it's the lowly brother, whether it's the rich, we're showing that our priorities are out of whack because that's not what matters. It's not what we have in this world, what we don't have in this world. That's not what it's about. Think what we've talked about thus far in James. The trials, difficulty, hardships. like These things that we're going to experience in a sin-stained world. 
But I don't know if you've ever thought about this, maybe noticed this, but trials, like real hardship, it's, it's a really great equalizer. It really puts people on the same playing field. Just think about it. Like when you're in a hospital bed with no control, like you have no control over making yourself better. When you're in a hospital bed, doesn't matter how much money you have, you have no hope to make yourself better. When suffering through the death of a loved one, doesn't matter how much stuff you have, you still face that grief. Doesn't matter how rich you are when you face that type of loss. Like when facing the loss of everything you have, the rich and the poor are, are, are equal. It might, honestly, it might hurt more for that rich person initially because they had more to lose. But once everything is gone, all are equal. You see, like, trials have a way of bringing people to this, like, level ground that, where there is need, where there is dependence. It's because it's no longer about what you have or what you don't have at that point. But, like, wealth does not somehow bring us closer to God. Poverty doesn't somehow keep us further from God. Because we're being reminded here of what truly matters. What kind of to reset our priorities. I think that we have, I have, a natural tendency to trust in material things. It's just kind of an internal default that I feel like I go back to all the time. And it's like, and it takes me a while to realize that's what I've done. Whether it's money, a car, the newest phone, the newest object. Like we're tempted to put our trust in perishable things, in things that don't last. Look at verse 11 here in James 1. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James just... Sorry, I lost my spot. Like James had just compared the rich man to the flowers of the grass. And he's saying, now the sun is just going to come and scorch them and the flowers are going to fade. Like, it's ultimately not going to matter. Like, this stuff, whether you're rich or poor, the stuff is not going to matter. I listened to a sermon a couple months ago um, from David Platt, and I, I tried so hard to find it this week because I was going to try to get a little clip from it. I uh, couldn't find it. I dug and dug and dug and couldn't find it. I spent more time looking for that than I should have. But he tells this story of, he was talking to someone in a different country. And, and in this country, there were, there, were, there were places, there were basically dumps that were just heaps and heaps and mounds and mounds of trash that they would just burn. This whole heap. And people would actually live there. 
Some people actually lived in these trash heaps. They would rummage through trying to find stuff to then go sell. But this is home for some people. Living amongst just burning trash. Something that I feel like I have a tough time even kind of envisioning that. People living amongst trash. And again, I'm very just scratching the surface of his whole story. But they, there was somebody that was talking to an individual who, who was in this country who was familiar, familiar with these areas. And like, man, it's awful. This outsider comes in and says, it's just so awful that you have to live amongst this rotten trash. And, and the guy said, it's really not that big of a deal. We just live in that trash five or ten years after you live in that trash. And it was like, that kind of, that hit me. It's like, the stuff that we're living in is going to be trash. The stuff that we have is just stuff. Like, this guy's, this guy's perspective is like, yeah, you're living in it when it's a little bit nicer, but it's still stuff. It's still going to perish. It's still going to rot. It's still stuff that you're spending your time, your energy, your money on. It's stuff that's going to be trash. And that, that has really stuck with me. Because, like, what are we valuing? What are we valuing? What are we prioritizing? What are we acting as if really matters? Is it stuff? Is it money? Is it something that money can buy? Because it's crazy to think, like, I value trash. I value trash. Like, it sounds ridiculous to say, Just think of this. I, I never come up with examples on the spot, but we recently went and watched Toy Story 4, and there's the spoon, which is trash. Hmm? What's Forky, right? Forky. So, who is trash. But this little girl values this spork more than anything else. Like, she doesn't care about any of her other toys, but she wants this spork that has like stuff painted on it, eyeballs glued on that keep falling off. And as a mature adult, I'm thinking, why? Like she has all these nice toys. She has Woody. She has Buzz. And yet she's clinging to this spork that she could go buy like a hundred of them for 50 cents. And yet she's clinging to this stuff. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And none of that spoiled any of the movies, so you're welcome. But it's like, when we think, I'm valuing trash, like it sounds ridiculous, but do we not do that? It might look better than a spork. It might look better than something that came out of a trash can. But eventually, that's what it's going to be. What are we valuing? What really matters? Like, it would be really easy to stand up here and just and just lash out and knock on those that have a lot of stuff, those that are wealthy, those that are rich. But that's really not what he's getting at here. There's a warning about valuing that stuff too much. He's saying, don't value that too much. It's just going to fade away. It's just going to be trash. It's just going to perish. But it's so much more than just that. 
How could, in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation? Like, what does the lowly brother, what does the person without much in this world, what do they really have to boast about? What could they boast about? Remember who James is writing to? He's writing to Christians. Followers of Jesus who've had their lives saved only through Christ. He's writing to people who've been scattered because of their faith that God has given them. They've been scattered because of their trust in Jesus. These people have Jesus. They have Christ. They have salvation from death to life. They have reconciliation with God. Has a hope that will never perish, that will never grow old, will never go away. Look up, it'll be on the screen. Peter puts it this way. It's 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. According to his, God, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because no matter what we have, no matter what we don't have, like in Jesus, we have a gift that is unfading, imperishable. No one can take it. No one can steal it. Imperishable. Nothing can take this away. Listen to this quote. It's talking of, of this person who has Jesus. It says, He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life, who is Jesus. He may be thirsty, but he has living water through Jesus. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. Listen, the point is that that stuff doesn't matter. Thirst, hunger, shelter, those needs are, are real. Or, those things are real, and the church should be seeking to meet those needs. But for us, how amazing is it that though we may have nothing physically in this world, like if our faith is in Jesus, we've been given everything. Eternal riches, eternal hope, welcomed into the eternal family of God. The, the world just continually sets up this picture. There's people that have and people that don't have. There's these two types of people. Either you have or you don't. And it's kind of crept its way into the church too. But listen, there is one type of person. One type of person. It's the person who desperately needs the grace of God. Who desperately needs salvation. Who desperately needs life. And that is each one of us. Desperately in need of grace. Desperately in need of what we cannot get ourselves. Desperately in need of Jesus. 
Because in Jesus, we've been given something that the world can't offer us. The world cannot offer anything that is eternal. But look at, look, look at what James has said. We've been given, we can find joy, God-given joy. The world can't offer that. Wisdom, God-given wisdom, and the world can't offer that. But God also, he's given us this, this priority. This, he's resetting this and saying, what really matters? And only in Jesus are we ever going to find true, real satisfaction. True, real satisfaction. Have you found this satisfaction? Have you found this satisfaction? Or are you still searching for it? I'm not asking if you call yourself a Christian. I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer at some point in your life. I'm not asking if you come to church every Sunday. I'm asking if you found satisfaction in what only Jesus can give, and that is Himself. Have you found the satisfaction? If you lost everything in this world, every material thing you own, would you be satisfied? If you lost every worldly relationship you have, would you be satisfied? Like this only makes sense. It only makes sense if we truly understand the riches of what we have in Jesus. This is death to life. Death to life. Eternal salvation. I want to end with the parable of the great pearl. It's in Matthew 13, 45 through 46. Um, just, I'm, I'm going to read it for us. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This merchant, this, this person Jesus is talking about here, he found something of supreme value, something that, that, that outweighed anything else that the world had. So he sold everything, got rid of everything to go after what had real value what had supreme value. In Jesus, this is what we have. This is what can be had. Yet we so often run after that which perishes, that which is worldly, that which is going to be trash. Have you found satisfaction If you feel like you don't have much in this world, or you feel like you've lost a lot and you don't have what you once had or what you wish you had, like we can be encouraged knowing what we have in Jesus. I'm not going to stand up here and promise you that one day you're going to have worldly riches. I'm not going to stand up here and say, oh, you're going to have more money than you have now, or you're going to have a, 
have more power or authority or wealth sometime in your life, I'm not going to make you that promise. The Bible doesn't make us that promise. But in Christ, in Christ, we've been given something that has so much more value than we can buy. A relationship with God, salvation, be made a part of his family. Only in Jesus can the lowly boast because they have Jesus. Can the lowly brother boast because he has Jesus? And the rich, it doesn't matter what he has. If that's what he's trusting in, what does I say? Humiliation. Like if that's what he's trusting in, it's foolish. But it's about what we have in Jesus, what we're hoping in, the eternal riches of Jesus that are not of this world. And I, and I pray that God would, would, would orient us. He's saying that we're disorienting and orient. Like that God would orient us to value what is valuable. Because nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Let's pray.